caregivers are also suffering. When we complain about the negative rap we have, I honestly believe it's attributed to these really ill-conceived models of reimbursement. What I love so much about PDPM is there is no difference between financial success and clinical success. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I'm a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome to this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, the podcast which is geared to the nursing home professional to bring you the very latest and the very greatest in the nursing home industry, where we speak to professionals, operators, vendors, and anyone else who can shed light and make your professional journey that much more successful. Today, we have the opportunity of speaking with the Chief Innovation Officer of Zimit Healthcare. For those who recall, we had Mark Zimit of Zimit Healthcare on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he was able to convince, coerce Stephen Littlehale for coming on the show with us today. So Stephen, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here this morning. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for taking some time and for coming on the Nursing Home Podcast. Really excited to have you here. Now, there are listeners who are very familiar with who you are. There are listeners who don't yet know you. So if you don't mind for our, for our audience, can you briefly describe your professional journey from where you are to how you evolved and are now part of the Zimit team? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think I'm one of those rare people who knew all along what I wanted to do with my life. In high school, actually a junior in high school, I decided that I wanted to be a nurse. And as a freshman in my undergrad program, I decided I wanted to focus in on elder care. And I really attribute that to having amazing relationships with four grandparents and and two great-grandmothers all while growing up. It was just extraordinary. So I have a graduate degree. I'm a clinical nurse specialist in gerontology. And for the first 10 years of my nursing career, it was direct clinical care, Hebrew Senior Life in Boston. There, I transitioned into their research and training institute and was part of the MDS 2.0 development team, along with other projects. And there, I really developed a very deep sense of what standardized clinical assessment was all about, the importance of reliability and validity and the power of what you could do with these standardized clinical data sets. I was then recruited to PointRight, then LTCQ, as their chief clinical officer, and then later their executive vice president. And PointRight takes all of this data, clinical data, regulatory, staffing, financial, um, basically any data that uh, we can get our hands on, and creates proprietary algorithms to really help give great insight into variants to help operators, nurses, clinicians, lenders, 
attorneys have deep data-driven insights into what is most important to them to help answer very key questions that are most pertinent to their work. In most instances, that means providing MDS coordinators, clinicians, administrators, directors of nursing, therapists, and their stakeholders, uh, nursing home stakeholders, with real-time actionable data-driven insights. Mm -hmm. So after being at Point Right for 21 years, I decided, and some people refer to this as my midlife crisis, maybe it was, but I decided that I really wanted to, one, get a little bit closer to providers, one step back to my roots, and also really fill in a gap that I was well aware existed within my own learning and experience, and that is reimbursement and, and the financial aspects of providing clinical outcome care. Honestly, that insight became really more paramount uh, since healthcare reform was signed into law. When we see that those two worlds are coming together, clinical outcomes and quality was it is in fact coming together with financial outcomes and financial success. And I delight in that. I think it's fantastic. So, you know, suddenly a clinician like me has a different audience. Right. So that's really exciting for me. So I joined Zimit Healthcare Services Group. I've known those folks for, gosh, almost the whole time that I've been at Point Right. I've been really excited with um, their deep analytical thinking around reimbursement models and how to support their clients in achieving success, which again, today means how do you achieve success? It's through providing excellent clinical care. Uh, and I joined that team, that extraordinary team as their chief innovation officer to think about new ways in which we could support providers and other stakeholders in the space. So that brings me to today. Well, thank you for that complete uh, background. And there, there are, you know, two, before we jump into some of the other questions, I will just tell you that being the host of the Love Your 9 to 5 show podcast as well, which you may or may not be aware of, which is a career podcast, it is astoundingly unique and refreshing to hear someone who knew so clearly so early on and was, you were able to exactly what you wanted to do and you further narrowed it down and you had the luxury of being at that stage in your life and continuing down the path further and further and further to accomplish you know, what you have already accomplished. It's just so exciting to to hear that, I can tell you how many conversations I've had with potential candidates for various positions where a big piece of their struggle is that their midlife crisis was finally figuring out what they really wanted to do and having the courage to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I had someone who, who was in finance, but not clinical finance, but about like regular working in a bank or whatever for 25 years, wrecked a marriage and a lot of other relationships and financially broke and finally said, oh, you know, I always knew in high school I wanted to become a nurse. And finally, she became a nurse, I think, mm. in LPN in, in mid-40s or maybe even later, you know, finally became an, a nursing home nurse, like starting at that level. And I asked her, why didn't you start as a nurse then? Imagine where you would be. Your name would have changed to Stephen Littlehale at this point. I didn't use that oh. example. But I said, you know, you could have been so much further down. She said, well, my dad wasn't finance. My mom was, was what was expected. And she didn't have the opportunity to 
think for herself, or she didn't allow herself the opportunity to think for herself and to sure. and to open that up. So that that is one one piece that's very exciting. But for the getting back to the nursing home podcast, I remember hearing this point being made. I forget right now from whom that when the clinical results and the clinical product has a direct financial impact, that's when everybody wins. That's when the residents win. That's when the mm-hmm. the operators win. That's when all of the various partners that we all have win because at the end of the day, we're providing excellent care and we're getting reimbursed, hopefully appropriately, based on the care that we're giving. So before we jump into PDPM, let's discuss a little bit about the current payment model and what the challenges is in this system and what what is the push to move to this new payment-driven payment model? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Just to kind of start, I, I, I cannot wait for this transition. This is going to be one of the happiest days in my professional career come October 1st. And, you know, I, that's a really bold statement. Yes. But for 20 years plus, many of us have been swallowing down the whole idea that the current model is motivating the wrong care, the wrong kind of care. And who suffers? Our nation's elders. What we don't realize is that we, the caregivers, are also suffering. When we complain about the negative rap we have in our industry, I honestly believe it's attributed to these really ill-conceived models of reimbursement. Wow. So let me be more specific. Let me be let me be more specific. From looking at clinical data, I'm able to look at the numbers of people, uh, elders, residents who are actively dying and who do not have that identified on their care plan and yet get sent back to hospital because we don't, we, the clinical leadership in the facilities, don't recognize that they're actively dying. We don't know what's going on. We haven't prepared them or their family. And we send them back to the hospital. And sometimes, many times, unfortunately, they actually die in the hospital. Well, how could it be that an industry that is created to care for elders, how can we be so bad at identifying someone at end of life? How can we struggle so much with identifying people with who are in pain? And it's because our system doesn't reward that. It doesn't motivate folks to think about how can you systematically assess for end of life. For over 20 years now, there has been an existence an MDS-based model for identifying people at end of life. And I say that to folks and people on this podcast are probably shocked to learn that. Right. It's been in the literature. It was, it was updated with MDS 3.0. It's in the academic literature, and it's been commercialized as well by not only PointRight, who has its own scale, but others. And yet we still have, when, when you look at the stats and you look at the number of people um, who are properly identified at end of life on palliative care, on hospice care, it's tiny. It's tiny. But yet, when you look at the number of people who are getting therapy minutes, no problem there. You know, we, we see that there's a tremendous amount of people who are getting three different types of therapy in, in minutes every single day. Wow. So the current system is motivating the wrong behavior. Again, it's a dramatic statement. I didn't have that in that, that clarity 20 years ago, but I sure have had it for the last 10 years 
Congress has had it for the last 10 years. MedPAC has had it for the last 10 years. Many of the people listening on this call today are all nodding their head, saying, we know what the right thing to do is. We have excellent clinicians. Maybe their skill set to identify these things is a little rusty because it hasn't been valued in our system. But many folks on this call are, are nodding their head and they're saying yes. One other quick example of this, I did a, uh, I, w- I was a co-author of a, a research study which looked at uh, the use of tube feedings in people with end-stage dementia. And we looked at the impact of being in a state whose Medicaid system rewarded the use of a tube feeding. And we just asked a simple question. In this population where there is no clinical justification to be using a tube feeding, if you happen to be in a state that pays off a tube feeding, is the prevalence of tube feedings in this population greater? Is anyone surprised to hear that it was? So if you're in a case-mixed state or a state that motivates financially, rewards financially for the use of tube feeding, sure enough, there they were. They were being used more in this end-stage population with dementia. I mean, how sad is that? No, I don't think that clinicians are sinister. I don't think administrators are sinister, and they're rubbing their hands together thinking, you know, how can we figure the system out and provide inappropriate care for financial gains? But a great example of, to bring it to transition to PDPM, a great example is you can today, you can get, PDPM training in any number of places around the country. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Some of it is saying, let's actually just focus on the financial drivers and teach you about the financial drivers of PDPM. Some of the education is saying, isn't it wonderful that depression is now being financially rewarded in PDPM? Let's teach you how to do a depression assessment how to capture the data appropriate and provide the right kind of care. So two different extremes, but that's how we've ended up where we are today. Okay. I mean, just to jump in there for a minute, for providers, for operators, and for people who are focusing on the, just on the financial side, you know, they're panicking because we know that what we've done in the past is no longer going to reward us financially the same way that it has. So we, we must get ahead of this financial piece in order to survive and be able to be a provider, period. At the same time, like we mentioned earlier, you know, at this point, when the financial and clinical measurements and the way that they're, the success markers are kind of you know, leveling out, this is a time when clinicians come to a financial meeting. The financial people don't put their fingers in their ears and say, geek talk. <laughs> they actually care because what the clinicians are saying are going, to, are going to impact how we're going to operate, and that impacts directly yeah. the financial results. So tell me if this makes sense. You know, both mm-hmm. parts are true. If someone's a CEO, CFO specifically of a large uh, nursing home chain, he's got to make sure that when it comes year one that they are at least surviving. Not necessarily, again, it's the same. Probably part of it is a transitioning or maybe transmitting the same culture into the PDPM, meaning that, you know, we must make sure that we're, go- that we're financially uh, viable in order to continue in the future. And then we'll figure out the clinical part and figure out we'll have our clinicians and we'll have our, our point right partners and our, 
you know, as with healthcare partners will show us how we can balance it out and make sure we're also providing, you know, for the residents, the highest level of care, which you're calling a bad model, which is true, but that's probably where it's coming from. It's the same bad rap, you know, that people had for the old model of care is, and they're going to be operators who are going to probably just focus on that. And again, the system is rigged in a way, so to speak, where they're going to have to provide great clinical outcomes in order to get that, but their focus may be financial. But the healthier approach, again, I'm thinking this through, and you're going to tell me if this makes sense, or maybe adjust it a little bit, but the healthier approach is, you know what, there's a reason why these changes are happening. Let's embrace the fact that our goal is equal, not just financial viability and profitability, but great clinical outcomes which have always been important, like we mentioned earlier, for every operator, but that should be all the way up there on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. When we have financial meetings, we now will be able to, for the first time, we'll be able to financially afford to provide the care we always wanted to give. Does that make sense? Yes, uh, it does make sense. It does make sense. I would say what I love so much about PDPM is it, there is no difference between financial success and clinical success. They're one and the same in PDPM. I think the model is brilliant. If you set out on the journey of how can I figure out how to financially gain the system, frankly, it's near impossible. If you push on one part of the model, the other part of the model gives way. Someone, and I can't remember who, used this analogy of a waterbed. You know, you push on one side of the waterbed and the other side comes up. And I see that in the model. And that's the first time I actually read the proposed rule I was, you know, I was geeking out. I was all excited. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. As a clinician, it's amazing, like how incredible it is for the facility to be able to do the right thing and get financially rewarded. And nursing is more front and center, you know, before they were relegated to the back of the bus and it was all about therapy and therapy minutes. Mm -hmm. It's not to turn therapists into a villain. You know, our industry is so regulated that we have become rule followers. So we follow rules. Behaviors change, just like behaviors will change with PDPM. But these behaviors that are going to change are going to be so much uh, the behaviors we want, the behaviors, the behaviors that I learned about in, in graduate studies and in, in excellent elder care and studied at Hebrew Senior Life in Boston. This feels so right for nurses. And I would say the greatest challenge we're going to have right now with PDPM transition is changing how we think, changing our framework for thinking about care. And let me be very specific. I go and I teach about PDPM quite a bit. And one of the coolest things for me is in the audience, I can have a lender um, from a commercial bank. I can have a HUD lender. I can have a REIT sitting next to the director of nursing the quality improvement nurse, the owner, the administrator, the MBS coordinator. It has never failed each and every time I've done a PDPM class that the mix of people, and they're all hearing the same information. I have to be careful with the jargon I use as a clinician, but we're hearing the same information. We're getting the same goals. So the, the alignment is there. But anyway, to the point I was making, people will ask me, about, for example, therapy, um, either their role of therapy or even therapy contracts and what they should look like. And here's a great example of taking the old world of thinking about care and applying and trying to apply it to PDPM and how it doesn't work. 
So folks will say, I will, I will reimburse my therapist if it's a contract therapy, for example. I'll reimburse them based on my PTOT and speech therapy components. And that's it. So they'll get a proportion of whatever that is. And I, I look to them and I, in a very tactful, diplomatic way, say, you know, that's just keeping sister in the box. That is basically saying, I value therapy for a minute. And that's it. And my point is that take the box away. Therapists are often the most skilled person in the building at any given time next to the physician. And how often is the physician there? They are the most skilled. They are most often doctorately prepared. And they not only can they provide rehabilitation services, but they're fantastic at cognitive assessment. They're excellent at wound care and wound assessment. There's just so much that they can do that we don't bring them to the table. I've studied this in the past, and I can see facilities that have higher proportion of physical therapists in the building have lower rates of rehospitalization. So, you know, we don't need to just value them for the minutes of therapy. Bring them to the interdisciplinary team and have them as equal players. So what I was going to say is that there's famously, there's this friction between the nursing staff and the therapy staff. Part of it is because, like you mentioned, a lot of times the therapy staff are technically part of a different company. And as much as they try to bring everyone together, that doesn't always work. But there's also the nursing staff are there 24-7. They work very hard, very long hours, and sometimes double. And we can't say it out loud, but we know sometimes people may even do triple shifts, which they can't do. But in a way, they feel very devoted and they feel like almost in a way like the mothers or parents of the residents, and these are our residents. And then you come in mm-hmm. here, the therapist, with your expertise and your skills, and you're telling us to do this and to do that. And instead of embracing the skill that they bring to the table, you know, sometimes it, you have that that friction. But again, this is this is probably another example of where we can include, mm-hmm. you know, the dietitian, like you started mentioning, and the therapist and really cash in, so to speak, on their skills, their expertise, their experience, and work together because now the goal is to provide that level of care for the resident. And we're not competing. Mm-hmm. But And again, and the therapists don't have, oh, well, I need the resident for a minute, so you'll do meds later, you know? And everybody knows mm-hmm. you know, the, the holy minutes. You know, that's where, that's our bread and butter. So yeah, okay. Even within the facility, like you said, when you speak to the crowd, I'm such a diverse group of people who are receiving the same information from a clinician, from a clinician standpoint, and truth be told, from anyone who really cares about residents, that is such an exciting concept that they all need and care about the same information. But I think it goes, again, this is the administrator in me speaking, that within each facility, there's also different stakeholders, so to speak. You have the banker in the facility, the, maybe the business office manager. Yes. Right? And you have the owner in the, in the facility, which might be the administrator. And you have you know, the clinician team and you, have, you know, and you have the therapy team. This kind of, even within the facility, brings everyone closer to the same page because you don't have the people who are just you know, ensuring that well, let's maximize therapy minutes and let's maximize the things that used to be the biggest payment drivers, where now we're kind of we're shifting that out. Yes. I love in your description, um, I love with what you just said, pardon me, was use the term cashing in on the therapist skill. And whether you intended to or not, that's exactly my point is in PDPM, you are cashing in on the therapist skills. Okay. So now I'm taking off my, my nurse's cap 
and and I'm putting on, I'm opening up my accounting ledger. And yes, it is cashing in on the therapist skill. But now the the financial people can delight in that. And so can the clinical team. And there doesn't need to be the tension that you so rightly described. The tension exists because we created it. They don't teach you to be at odds with, in nursing school, they don't teach you to be at odds with physical therapists and, and vice versa. Um, we taught that. We brought that in our in our current rug system. We created that. So unless you would like to go in a different direction, there's some things that, although I, I delight over PDPM, there's a couple of things uh, probably more than a couple of things that I'm a little concerned about. And I, I want to kind of share the cautionary tale with listeners on this call, if I may. Please do. So in PDPM, as I mentioned, it's all about the patient's characteristics. And CMS is very clear to call the person the patient. And we should all delight in that. It's really the first time it's ever been acknowledged that we are caring for patients and not residents. So what's going to happen is come October 1st, behaviors are going to change. I've worked for companies where we were trained and educated not to refer to them as patients, partially because some of them are long-term residents. You know, this is where yep. they live and this is their house, home-like environment and all that. So why is it that you delight that we refer to them as patients? Well, I think what you're referring to is the nursing home of yesteryear. I think that we care for both patients and residents in the same setting. For better or worse, richer or poorer, we're caring for patients who have absolutely no intentions of staying in our building and are going home. And they are as acute as the patients that are in an LTAC or an ERF. Sometimes they're as acute as the person in the hospital, as some of us are admitting people directly from the ER. To call them residents is inappropriate. They don't like it. And it doesn't really do us well when you look at just their data and we start commingling it with our long stay people who are residents and who are with us for the duration. Got it. So words are important. You can have a person come in as a patient and transition to a resident. And why don't we just draw that line at 100 days? Or why don't we draw that line when their source of payment changes if we want to? Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. Words are important. So here we are with PDPM, and October 1st, behaviors change. And in some instances, care is going to change as well, but behaviors change. So the behaviors I mean are documentation predominantly. I know for a fact from my time at Point Right and more recently at Zimit Healthcare Services Group, I know for a fact that certain care is being provided, but it's not being documented in their medical record. Let, let me give you an example. Okay. So if you look today in you know, 2018, all right, so last year, and you looked at five-day assessments, Medicare assessments, and you looked at the nation where, you know, we're providing mechanically altered diets about 24% of the time. Okay, so why is that important? Well, when you actually go in the building and you start looking at trays as they're being delivered, or you start looking at care plans, you see that, no, 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 no. 24% is ridiculously low. You know, mechanically altered diet is chopped foods, it's softened foods, it's pureed foods. It's, right. It means many, many, many things. It's not 24% of the time. It's closer, maybe it's triple that. If you talk to the speech therapist in the building and you say, you know, what proportion of your patients are, are people in this building getting mechanically altered? She'll she'll say, as recently I tested this out, and, and she did say, 
oh, you know, it's probably a couple of dozen people in the building, but but frankly, it's closer to 70% of the building actually get it. So why is that? Well, there was no motivation to document it. Who cares? It was in the care plan. It never made it to the MDS. So now mechanically altered diet is going to increase your case mix index in the, the speech and language pathology component. So basically, you're going to get paid for it. And why shouldn't you? You're doing it. You're assessing someone's swallowing disorder. You're putting an intervention in place. So, bam, you do it. Mm-hmm. So, what is that going to look like? Uh, what's that going to look like? Let's take those two components, swallowing disorders and mechanically altered diet. Swallowing disorders, you know, the nation's at a rate of about 3.7%. But if you look at the literature, and you in the literature that talks about studies in our population that we're talking about, they will talk about dysphagia or swallowing difficulties being anything from 40% to 68%. But today, according to MDS, it's 3.7% from the analysis we did at Point Right a few months ago. So, wow, what's real here? 3%, 40%. They're both real. So what's going to happen October 1st is we're going to start saying, well, you know, now I document it. Uh, there's a motivation for me to document it. So I start documenting this and we go from 3% swallowing disorders up to 40. We go from 24% mechanically altered diet up to 50% mechanically altered diet. And we're doing the right thing and we're documenting it and we're getting reimbursed for it. And we're evaluating our care plans constantly. Everything is great. Then someone comes by and that someone usually has initials such as OIG or CMS or fill in the blank. And they say, oh, look at these providers. Look at them gaming the system. And it's we're not gaming the system. We're playing by the rules. And so what do you do with that dilemma? We have some providers that are saying, I get it. And so therefore, I'm going to slowly change my behavior. And then other people that are saying, I'm going for it. I'm going to do it right from the beginning on day one. You know, I'm not going to say one way is better than the other, although I have to say the sort of insipid changing of behavior is really easy to identify when you're looking at data and analytics. So it doesn't provide protection. But anyway, we're in a dilemma. We're going to have all of our nation's nursing homes changing their coding practices and documenting care differently. I strongly believe the care has been given all along, but we're documenting it for the first time. So CMS is aware of this. CMS is, it knows that, I guess this is a question, right? I, the reason the push for the change, as we already discussed, is you know to balance out the care in a way that is in the best interest of the resident and make that also in the best interest mm-hmm. of the facility. It should be at that, that much uh, financially rewarded. So this should be an expected outcome. Okay, I think I'm getting it now. In other words, CMS is going to assume or whichever initials walks in the building or analyzes the data from afar is going to assume that we're documenting everything. We always have been documenting everything. So if you're now increasing, assuming that what the data will say is that, you know, we used to not have so many mechanically altered diets. Now we started giving everybody pureed food and because we're being financially incentivized to do so, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And where really the truth is, is, there's a lot of things that we always do, but the, you know, the people who push for the accurate documentation 
and not just accurate versus inaccurate, but complete documentation is when the rubber hits the road. If in the financial office, they see a problem, they're going to go back to the clinicians and say, you better make sure you do this. When you're doing it anyway, you better make sure you document. So that is a problem. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what's going to happen with that? Yeah. So CMS believes PDTM will be budget neutral and there's no way it's going to be budget neutral. These changes are never budget neutral because behaviors change. We play by the rules. We change our behaviors. We start documenting things we never documented before. And and someone from afar who's looking at macro data sets, they're going to see the shift in coding practices. They've never worked a day in their life uh, in a nursing home. They've never been in a nursing home. They don't listen to your podcast. They don't follow my blog on McKnight's. And they're going to say they're clearly gaming the system and changing their behaviors. And, and they'll also say, look what they did in the past. Look at all the providers who went up to ultra high providing 720 minutes, but never 721 minutes. You know, and, and I'm being overly dramatic because there was tremendous variation in the therapy minute provision. There were some bad actors out there who, you know, got caught and, and others who didn't. But by and large, the majority of the industry was doing the right thing. And I think that will happen now. But PDPM is so profoundly different that unless you are looking through the change with the right lens, I'm afraid the conclusions you'll draw will not be flattering. And that's what we as providers and investors and REITs and attorneys and caregivers need to be prepared for. Awesome. So tell me another concern that you have with this new change of PDPM. Another concern, I, I alluded to it before, mm-hmm. and that is we we take the rules of the past and we try to apply them to the future. I'll give a different example and, and stop uh, using the therapy example. <laughs> so we look at the MBS coordinator and we look at his or her job description and we don't change it. We say this person is amazing. She's been crushing it all these years, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't say, well, actually, the job description does need to change. It needs to change because the MDS schedule has changed. The values have changed. So the MDS coordinator's job description should be less about timing and documentation and scheduling and making sure everything is done in the right time and submitted, which is incredibly important today, capturing acuity, They should now, in PDPM, they should be care managers. They should be very astute clinicians who are able to look at very obtuse clinical information about the patient that comes with them from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And they have to be able to look at that and kind of spec it out and say to themselves, well, this is odd. Why are they getting this medication or have this equipment in place or have this behavior? But they don't seem to have an appropriate diagnosis that lines up with that. And to be able to stop and say, oh, well, what are their diagnoses? And then advocate for, with the physician, a more appropriate diagnosis that really captures why the person is does have the characteristics that they have. Got it. And that's a very different skill set. I mean, that that's really a very, like I said, a very astute clinician, not necessarily, you know, a different skill set. 
So you know, the person who's been there, you know, gathering the data from all the various departments and inputting everything into the MDS and making sure, like you said, make sure everything is submitted on time, which kind of has been the the role and the focus and putting in all those hours of getting it in. Yeah, now now that's changed. And I mean, the good part is, I guess, that they have the the luxury to think, you know, broadly, like you mentioned, because the schedule has changed and because it's more about the the bigger picture. But someone who's great at sitting in front of a computer all day and you know and getting the MDSs in on time and complete and accepted uh, may not be the person who can sit there and look at the complete picture and like you said and pick up on those things that are so important. Tim, I kept you here way past I should have. I'm just noticing the time and it's a good thing because that means they're providing all of this service, all of this uh, material, which is so timely and you're so uniquely qualified uh, to share this with the listeners. And do you have any final thoughts uh, regarding PDPM and these changes that you would want to share with our listeners before we let you go to your busy day? Thank you very much. And I've really enjoyed spending the time with you. And I hope my excitement and passion about this, this change comes across. I just think that we are in such an unbelievable inflection point in our industry. PDPM is setting us up for success. PDPM is here for, you know, five years. It'll be replaced by another system. And that other system is already foretold. You know, you don't have to be an oracle to know that. You just have to be able to read the Impact Act and understand where we're going to in this nation. We are going to site-neutral reimbursement where all post-acute, institutional post-acute settings will get reimbursed the same rate. Now, traditionally, skilled nursing is less expensive than some of our counterparts, LTACs and ERFs. So PDPM and the data that we're now collecting off of MDS is really going to demonstrate that we are the best game in town. We're providing the best outcomes at the lowest cost. So this is just a simple stepping stone. If we crush this, we're going to do exceedingly well in the future. Wow. How encouraging that is for operators. I mean, I can just say from my personal experience, that resonates with me so deeply because it's always been so frustrating. And I, you hear from the residents, you hear from the families, they know that the level of care that we provide with the resources that are extremely limited compared to some of our professional clinical partners, and some of the results are beyond astounding. You know, we don't have to go through specific examples, especially because it's late, but people come in completely paralyzed and walk out the front door. There's so many examples. Um, and, and you're right. And we do it. We get the, we get the trimmest, you know, leanest uh, reimbursement for providing many, many times. Again, there are bad apples, of course, as well, but many, many times outstanding results. And if that is the, the wave of the future, then it, that is really, really amazing news for providers who have been, always been doing this and for other providers to get on the bandwagon. And like I said earlier, everybody wins this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thank you for coming on. If our listeners want to hear more about some of your writing, some of your teaching, uh, where's the best place for us to send them? Is there one place for us for us to send them? Well, I would say in terms of email, the best way to reach me is Stephen with a V at zhealthcare.com. Mm-hmm. A simple Google search will reveal many presentations that I've done as well as writings. And I have a monthly blog in McKnight's. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen. This is really, really enjoyable. 
and I'm we're going to share this enjoyment with everybody else. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Have a great day.